Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Anisha Abraham, MD, MPH, a board-certified pediatrician and adolescent health specialist. Welcome, Dr. Abraham. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me on the show. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience living abroad? How did you get interested in cross-cultural children? I'm a pediatrician, and my specialty is working with teenagers. And I grew up as the daughter of South Asian immigrants, United States. As a physician, I also served as a military doctor and worked in a number of communities with young people that were moving from place to place. And about 10 years ago, my husband and I, along with our two boys, moved abroad. We initially lived in Hong Kong for five years and then in Amsterdam, Netherlands, and have just very recently returned. So we certainly also have had the experience of being parents with young people with children and living in different countries. So as a physician, as a teen myself in the past, but certainly as a parent, I've experienced different countries and I felt that there was tremendous benefits in terms of this experience, but also some challenges. And I think this is part of why I've become so interested in helping young people that are going through similar experiences. What defines a cross-cultural child? Are expat children different than cross-cultural children or are the terms interchangeable? That's a great question. And I would say the short answer is that a cross-cultural child is any young person that's exposed to more than one culture in their daily environment. And there are many children and teenagers that fit within that umbrella of cross-cultural kids. And that can include young people that are immigrants, that have parents that are immigrants, have moved from place to place, as I mentioned, as my experience in the military, but certainly as expats, they've moved with their parents from country to country. It can also include young people whose parents are from different backgrounds, whether that's cultural or religious. And more and more, we're seeing that kids are exposed to culture, not only physically, but also virtually. So I would say that cross-cultural children also encompasses young people that have that virtual experience of culture on a daily basis. How are expat teens or cross-cultural teens different from other adolescents? Well, I think that there's some wonderful strengths that come with being cross-cultural. And certainly we know that because they're exposed to being in another country, having to move, having to learn a new language, to be with other people from a very different background with culture and traditions, that there's certainly a great bit of adaptability that occurs with that and tolerance, a worldview, also usually an understanding of more than one language because of having to live in another country. There's, I think, some wonderful things that can come with being an expat or being a cross-cultural child. There also can be some challenges. The one that I think young people bring up the most is the issue of identity and belonging, this feeling of who do I connect with? Who is my tribe? Where do I really belong? In addition to that, there can be some challenges related to grief and loss. For example, if you're moving from place to place, as my own kids have very recently done, there's this tremendous sense of loss of the community that you've had before, your friends, the things that you've known. And sometimes we don't always talk about those issues. And sometimes these issues can continue on for some period of time because we don't discuss them. There's also some thought that adolescence can be more prolonged with young people that have moved from culture to culture. We can perhaps talk about that more but there's some thought that they don't go through the same process as other teenagers that have been in one place where there's more of a monoculture where everyone else is having that same experience as they are. Can you dive deeper into the prolonged adolescence that you just mentioned? Yes, it's a very interesting concept. And I'll say that what we do know of teenagers is it's so important to get what we call mirrors and anchors. 
being able to reflect back from the people around them values and norms and rites of passage. And adolescence, when it's cross-cultural, if you're living in a place where there might be different ways of handling a behavior, becomes a little bit more confusing. I'll take the example of alcohol use. I can certainly say from a number of families that have lived in Europe, they find that the norms are very different for alcohol use among European families and they may be among American families. And there sometimes can be earlier initiation of alcohol use or certainly certain families um, may even be drinking within their own family and starting that earlier. So the normal mirrors and anchors that teenagers may see in terms of when to use it or when to try it, or when to experiment, may be very different in that context of your peers or the people around you starting alcohol use early. So in that case, the process of deciding what's right for you can take a little bit longer. And again, it can sometimes be a little bit challenging unless families are very clear about their own boundaries and their own values and what they think are important. Why is the experience of being a cross-cultural adolescent different than for younger cross-cultural kids? Adolescence is a really wonderful time of developing one's own unique identity. And it's part of the reason that I find it such a fascinating time. And certainly as a pediatrician, spend a lot of time with young people. But part of what kids are doing during adolescence is thinking about their physical identity and feeling comfortable with their physical identity. All of the wonderful changes that are happening and certainly, again, feeling good about all of those changes as they go on. In addition to physical identity, they're also coming to terms with their gender and sexual identity. And that's a very important part of adolescence. And the final piece for cross-cultural kids is coming to terms with their cultural identity. And again, those fundamental questions of who am I? Where do I belong? Who is my tribe? Do I feel comfortable with the people that I'm with right now and you know, have a sense of belonging and identity? And that, I think, is not the same for a child that may not be going through all of these questions and thinking about identity in the same way. So I certainly think that, again, adolescence is a really interesting and exciting journey, but it certainly can become even more challenging if you're cross-cultural because you have that additional question of cultural identity to also resolve as you go on to become an adult. How does cross-cultural issues affect an adolescent's education and social interactions? Well, we certainly know that education can be very different depending on what community you're in. There can be different ways of learning so that can very much affect a cross-cultural adolescent, particularly if they're living in a different country or community. As I mentioned, if they are with young people from other backgrounds, it certainly can have a very rich social interaction, but sometimes it can also be challenging in terms of understanding what are the norms. They may have friends or peers that have very different ways of expressing themselves, whether it comes to becoming sexually active or using alcohol or trying drugs. There can be very different norms for young people that have that cross-cultural exposure. So again, coming back to the importance of parents having conversations and making connections and talking about their own personal values are really important when we talk about cross-cultural kids, particularly in the backdrop of education and social interactions. How do adolescents best deal with cross-cultural identity? And is it important that they have a central identity? I think that it's very important for adolescents to, at some point, feel comfortable with their identity and their cultural identity and having a central identity. And in fact, there's some thought that when young people don't feel comfortable, they sometimes can become more vulnerable, sometimes even marginalized and at risk for potentially being involved in gangs or other kind of groups. So having a central identity and being clear about that identity, I think, is a very important part of adolescence. And so, 
again, as families and communities, being able to talk to kids about that identity, being able to ensure that they have clear sense of belonging and a clear sense of roots and understanding their own heritage are really important things that we need to be talking to cross-cultural kids about. And one of the things that I have done, and certainly part of the research for my book, was doing a survey of young people that lived around the world and certainly their parents. And one of the questions that they responded to was whether or not you've ever talked about identity and your cross-cultural identity with your family. And about 70% of young people responded that they hadn't. So I think it's really important to realize these are things that we assume that we have discussed, but we don't always have specific conversation about it. But it's so important to make sure that we think about identity and resolution of identity and ensuring that young people feel comfortable. How can you best address regular international moves during the teen years, especially if teens are changing high school environments? There are many young people that move every year, some of them because they have to due to their parents or family's occupation or work, others for economic reasons, um, certainly because they have other educational opportunities. So I certainly think this is a very common thing and will probably continue to increase around the world. Having said that, I think that adolescence is a time of questioning about identity, and it certainly can be difficult for kids when they're, again, trying to resolve these questions of who am I and who do I, how do I fit in, and then add on to that an international move. I do tell families that young people are incredibly resilient and in many cases that they do quite well when they've had a move or transition. If it's possible to avoid moving during the teen years or certainly as they're potentially in their latter part of their high school years, for example, there's a way just to stay in one country to complete schooling in one place, that may be a little bit easier. I also think that temperament has a lot to do with it. Some young people do better and are okay with the move process where others have a lot more challenges. So I think it's so important, again, to be aware of what your kids are like, certainly to build in support, make sure you have conversations, that you prepare them for the move, they have an understanding of what will be coming up in that next place that they're going to, and starting to build those connections and build those roots. Why have teens' mental health issues increased in the past few years, or has this always been the case and we haven't acknowledged them? Do expat children have more or less of these issues? I would certainly say that mental health is a big issue among young people, but we've also seen with the current COVID pandemic is that more and more young people are expressing that they feel uncertain about the future, they feel isolated, they are not able to see their friends, much less to travel and see family members or go to perhaps their home country or other communities. They are not able to potentially have some of the milestones that were expected, whether it's graduation or able to go off to university and be on campus. So there's a tremendous sense of loss and frustration and uncertainty. And I think that also increases the amount of young people that are saying that they're stressed or anxious or depressed. I think that it's very important as parents and as adults and caregivers to be aware of these issues and certainly at the very least to talk about them, to be open about them, to validate young people's emotions, to ask very specifically about issues related to depression and suicide, and more importantly, to ensure that young people stay connected and that they're able to get support if for any reason they do bring up that they're feeling incredibly stressed or anxious. And that support can include talking to another family member, talking to a coach or a counselor, or sometimes even a health provider, because many of them right now are using telemedicine to make that piece just a little bit easier. 
What about the issues of teens who need counseling but are living in a country where there is a stigma associated with mental health issues and seeking help? That's a really good question. And I certainly can say that I've lived in communities, particularly in Asia, where there's been a tremendous amount of stigma related to talking about depression, talking about mental health. There's a feeling that these issues are not something that you want to go outside of the family with. There may also be some bias in terms of talking to a psychologist or a therapist. Many families don't want to have any type of a diagnosis. Again, it's something that there can be barriers to. And I think that trying to enable young people to have support in a variety of ways. I always talk about the importance of having a global village to support young people. As I mentioned, sometimes being able to just reach out to another adult that is a trusted adult can be the first step in terms of addressing mental health. Sometimes, again, that can be a coach or another teacher or someone that's within the school network that can still provide that support. And many schools are very aware right now of the need to provide mental health and are providing counselors and resources to help with that. I do also think that as a community, we also need to work on decreasing those barriers and biases and trying to improve kids being able to get the support that they need. But I think also educating families in terms of what's important for their kids and realizing if they don't get the support, it can continue to become a problem. And in many places, suicide, for example, is a tremendous issue. So trying to get young people to get the support they need early on is actually very important in terms of their long-term health and their long-term well-being. What can parents do to help with their teen's mental health issues outside of counseling and medication? I'm a big fan of parents taking care of themselves as a way to take care of their own kids. And I know a lot of adults that have expressed that they feel also stressed and anxious and depressed. And certainly there's been really good data to show that the incidence of depression, for example, has tripled within the United States. So just as they talk about when you're on a plane and you're a parent and they say, please put your oxygen mask on first before you offer to a child, I think it's important for us as adults to take care of our stress and our mental health and then to model this for our own children. I talk a lot about having a self-help kit and um, putting in tools or ways to address stress and mental health and knowing which ones are going to be useful to you as an adult. And that can include things like exercising or talking to friends. It can include things like mindfulness or yoga. Every adult has probably something that helps them to handle stress. And then also ensuring that kids have similar mechanisms to address stress. And young people often tell me that, again, talking to a friend, even using social media as a way to connect with them can be really helpful. Some of them tell me that playing music, getting out and doing some form of exercise, these are all very helpful ways for them to address stress. So aside from medications or counseling, I think there's a lot we can do in terms of building in these self-help coping skills or tools. And I think that's something that we as adults really need to be ensuring that we do for ourselves. Can you tell us about your research project that you fielded last year? Yes. As I mentioned, I did a survey involving about 360 parents and teenagers around the world. It is primarily been used as a way to think about some of the issues that young people are dealing with. It is not a scientifically randomized survey, but it did provide some very good information in terms of what are some of the concerns that, again, teenagers and parents that are cross-cultural are concerned about. And one of those involves the issues related to identity and belonging. A lot of young people also express that 
they are worried about moving because they are worried about leaving friends behind, that sense of loss, that grief that we don't always acknowledge. So a number of issues came up on that survey, which in turn helped inform me about some of the issues that I needed to address in my book. You note that most adolescents don't talk to their parents about being cross-cultural. Why is that? I think that many times young people, as they're going through adolescence, are also trying to become probably more independent. And certainly not all young people will perhaps talk about these issues. I will also say that many times parents don't also talk about these issues with their kids. They just assume that everything is okay. Part of the reason I wrote Book Raising Global Teens was to get young people and parents to start thinking about some of these issues just a little bit more. So the short answer is there's probably a lot that we don't always talk about with our teenagers. We just assume that they're going to be okay. But certainly what I know from my experience working with them is it's very important to have specific conversations. And through conversations, we create connections are so protective right now. So coming back to the issues related to identity and belonging, it may be something that, again, people don't think is an important topic of discussion, but as we know now, it is actually really important in terms of development and a young person feeling good about themselves. Right. You talk about parents increasing conversations with adolescents. What is the best way for parents to go about this and getting their teens to talk with them? I have a couple of tips that I outline in the book and certainly talk about quite a bit in my work with parents. And one of the tips is the fact that young people are more likely to talk about what their friends are doing as opposed to what they're doing. So I very specifically say talk about their peers and their friends as a way to break the ice to talk about what's happening in their lives. So ask your teenager if their friends are feeling stressed or their friends are feeling depressed, because if their friends are feeling that, they're more likely to themselves. And then you can use that as a segue to talk about, and how are you feeling? And how are you doing? And have there been a time you felt depressed or even thought about hurting yourselves? So talk about peers. My second strategy that I'd like to recommend is to try to have conversations where you're doing an activity in parallel. You're not actually looking them in the eyes. Sometimes looking at kids in the eyes can be really intense and a little bit scary. So if you're having these deep conversations, do it while you're walking with them or while you're driving with them or perhaps late at night. Sometimes this is what I do as a parent. Late at night when they're about to go off to sleep and it's dark in the room, then you can sometimes have that conversation. My third tip is that as parents, we sometimes tend to go on and on. My own kids remind me of this. And we forget that teen brains are not fully developed until kids are around 25 years of age or sometime in the 20s. So even though we have these long, very thoughtful arguments or very thoughtful ways of expressing ourselves, our kids have usually stopped listening to us after the first two or three sentences. So I recommend the 50% rule, which is to say half of what you intend to say keep things to a minimum as a way to be more effective in your communication. Should families consider sending adolescents quote unquote home to a nuclear family like grandparents, aunts and uncles in the country where they first came from or where they were born? That's a very personal decision. And I think it really depends on the family, on the child, certainly the nuclear family and their willingness to also have someone come home. I do think that having some connection to a home country is important, but again, sending them home and away from the country that the rest of the family might be in can also sometimes be complicated. So there's not a a specific answer to this. I think it very much depends on the family. I will say that as expat parents, 
we did very much try for our own boys to spend some time in the United States with their grandparents, but also in Germany, which is where my husband's from, with their grandparents there and with their extended family. So having some sense of what their home countries are like and having some continued exposure to it, I think is really important on many levels, but whether or not to do that as an extended plan, I think is very much an individual decision. You had some advice for parents about helping teens to get through COVID by channeling a little Aretha Franklin. Can you explain your tips and can families employ this approach in other situations? Absolutely. I talk about what I call respect, the model of having respect, just like a Aretha Franklin song. That respect mnemonic stands for having routines, decreasing expectations, talking about strengths, about positive role modeling, also engaging young people, thinking about technology, and also increasing communication. And I think these are just little tips that can help young people and parents as we're talking about the COVID pandemic. More specifically, when it comes to routines, I think that when kids are online for school, they're experiencing lockdowns or experiencing changes in their schedules, going back to routines and having structure can actually be very helpful for kids. That may also, for younger kids, include regular sleep time and meal times, for parents to encourage non-digital time where they can get out and exercise. But having those routines, I think, can be really, really helpful. In terms of expectations, which is the E, I do think it's important to realize that we may have a lot of expectations for kids right now. And it actually is really tough for them. So lowering those expectations just a little bit, knowing it's going to be a little harder for them to be able to perhaps get through their schoolwork or understand or to learn in the same ways or be able to get through their music or their sports. So just decreasing expectations that we have about ourselves and how much we're going to accomplish, much less our kids, I think is also a really useful thing to be aware of. Talking about the S and the strengths. I talk about the fact that young people are uneven, which is that they excel in some areas and they may have challenges in others. So building on those strengths, the things that they do well in, is a really wonderful way to support kids, to build self-esteem and resilience, and to help them to kind of cope with all the challenges that are happening during the pandemic. The P has to do with positive coping skills. And I think that we've talked just a little bit about some of those self-help skills, and again, whether it's exercise or mindfulness or any of these other wonderful things, we need to build in those coping skills. The E includes engagement and getting young people to realize that by social distancing and wearing a mask and washing their hands and maintaining all of that is really important in terms of decreasing COVID spread. And this sometimes can be harder for older adolescents who potentially want to meet their friends or don't understand why they can't have those gatherings. In terms of the final two letters and the mnemonic, I would just say that, again, encouraging kids to have communication is really important in terms of connections. And finally, the T has to do with technology. And I get a lot of questions about screen time and how much is too much. And I'll just say that technology right now can be really helpful in terms of helping kids to stay connected and to feel good. And we certainly want to think about having balance, but not to minimize the power, again, of having technology in their lives. When referencing the pandemic, a lot of the commentary has been negative. I found your blog post about the pandemic being an opportunity, quote, to reshape the future of global families, unquote, a refreshing perspective. Can you dive into this for our listeners? Yes, I think that the pandemic is a wonderful opportunity to think about what else we can do differently. And I had used that blog post built on 
another author, Anadathi Roy, who's an Indian author who wrote a book called Goddess of Small Things. And she had written a post on the similar concept of the pandemic being a portal for the future. And I do think that there can be some wonderful opportunities for us as families, particularly cross-cultural families, to think about what good things may have come out of it, if there is such a thing as good things coming out of pandemics. But have we learned perhaps to do more family time or rituals or staying connected to family members? And this may be also a really good time to sit down and do some goal setting with older adolescents about what they really want to accomplish. This is also a wonderful time to think about resilience and knowing that probably the biggest predictor of success in life is the ability to handle challenges and to get back up on your feet. And I think that the pandemic offers a wonderful opportunity for adults and kids to think about how to build resilience and to handle and to be flexible and to problem solve and to kind of build those skills for the rest of their lives. 2020 was a reminder to all of us that life can sometimes get out of our control. Last summer, you spoke to some teens in the Netherlands about managing these uncertainties. Do you have any tips for parents on how to help their teens become resilient during tough times? Building on what we talked about before, which is this idea of resilience, I think that it's very important for parents and teenagers to know that resilience is such a positive attribute. And you're not born with resilience, but it's something that you develop over time. And being able to handle those challenges is really, really useful in terms of everything else that you do in life. So looking at what's happened during the pandemic as an opportunity to reshape one's life, to build grit, to have this concept of what I call having bounce and getting back up on your feet is a positive way to think about the pandemic. And as I mentioned, and certainly from my work with young people, doing goal setting, having family meetings to talk about issues and how best to address them, ensuring that they also reach out to mentors and to coaches and to people that they value in their lives to get support are all really important things that young people can do right now in terms of addressing the pandemic and thinking about the future. What are your thoughts about the impact of social media on teens? Social media is certainly not going anywhere and is useful when keeping in touch with family and friends globally. Any tips on how parents can help their kids navigate social media? I have a very nuanced view when it comes to social media. And as a pediatrician, I think that there's some tremendous benefits for media in general, which includes things like connections and education and helping young people that potentially feel isolated to be able to connect with others and other communities. But I also think that there can be a downside to prolonged media use, particularly social media. And I've had young people that, for example, are constantly checking their Instagram account and looking at how many likes they get. And if one is constantly comparing themselves, they're at higher risk for things like body image and eating disorder related issues. So being aware of that, I think, is really important. And I would tell parents that ensuring that they know what their kids are doing. Connecting with them about the various accounts that they may be on is really important. Certainly being aware if a teenager is making comments about not feeling good about themselves, comparing themselves to others, certainly if there's any references to their own bodies and body image, that these are really important issues that we need to address early on. In some cases, and not in all, but in some cases when a young person is constantly checking and is not feeling good about themselves, is waking up in the middle of the night, for example, is only on their social media and is not doing very much else, it may sometimes be a time to kind of reset and to either have them kind of cut back on the accounts that they're checking or perhaps take a little detox and a little break from it 
Because at the end of the day, I think the focus really should be on how kids are feeling and what's on the inside and not what's on the outside. So just being aware of that balance and having parents be attuned to it, I think are really powerful messages. Can you speak to the resources out there that are available to families who are going to move abroad or are living abroad and might need some help with their kids? I think it's very important for families to be able to tap into resources and to know that they're not alone when they move out into a new community or into a new country. I will just mention that Families in Global Transition, FIGT, is a wonderful international organization that certainly helps families that are abroad and has an extensive network of coaches and therapists and other levels of support to families that are in this position. And it's worth looking at and joining, depending on also your employer, for example, the State Department and the consulates also have liaisons, which are fabulous resources in terms of, again, getting services in the community, particularly if you have a child that has special needs or needs something beyond what you might be able to access in that community. I will also just say as a parent and as an expat that each time I moved, being able to join listservs and organizations with other expats that were English speaking was very helpful to me in terms of, again, getting basic services, much less sometimes asking those more complicated questions. So really encouraging listeners, families that are moving abroad to tap into all of that, to know that using that global network can be very helpful in these situations. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share? I'll just go back to the premise of my book, Raising Global Teens, which is that parents, adults have such a powerful influence on their children's lives, particularly at a really wonderful time where they're transitioning to becoming adults. And with cross-cultural kids, again, they have this additional burden of navigating their cultural identity in addition to their physical and gender and sexual identity. And coming back to encouraging parents to have those connections, to have those conversations, to start to use these opportunities to talk to kids and ensure that they're feeling good about themselves, I think is such an important message. And I would certainly encourage anyone that's listening to this conversation today to go back and to perhaps use some of these tips and to use that as a way to start talking about these important issues that young people are struggling with today. Thank you, Dr. Abraham, for joining us today. Thank you. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.